you know, a listener might go to a food pantry to, to help. I encourage them to sort of get out from behind the table where the bags are or where the food is and go have a conversation and learn about what's been going on in the life of, of someone who's there to get help. And then think about all the forces in society that have had an impact on that person's life and what we might do differently. This is Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Bishop Rob Wright, and this is Four People. We've got a great treat today. We're on with uh, Professor Luke Schaefer from the University of Michigan. Uh, He's educated at Oberlin College and a Ph.D., from the University of Chicago School of Social Administration. And he cares an awful lot about poverty. His work has been cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, The Atlantic, and the LA Times. Luke, good morning. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be with you. We are so glad that you're here um, to have a conversation uh, about America uh, and to have a little bit about, uh, to talk a little bit about poverty uh, in America. So so I always like to start off asking folks sort of how do you come to this work? You've got a, a wonderful body of work. You co-authored a book about living on $2 a day. Uh, how do you come to this work? Why this work for you? Well, it actually came through my faith life. So I, I grew up as a preacher's kid. My, my dad was an Episcopal priest. Uh, we were in a small town in Michigan. And um, when I was in about seventh grade, he went through a career crisis and left the church uh, pretty, pretty quickly. And we had to move within a month. And, you know, we were as a as a small town Episcopal priest, I think we were sort of clinging on to the bottom rungs of the middle class. And in that moment, we um, we experienced a pretty bad spell. You know, we only uh, had a place to live because of um, a uh, parishioner who sort of helped us get a place at a, at a low rent. And I, you know, went through this period where I, I realized we, we just really didn't have enough to make ends meet. Um, but my family, uh, rather than having to go to the, to the welfare office to, to get a little bit of help, uh, when I was in crisis, we had a, a family network. You know, we had grandma and grandpa uh, who could who could help out. So things weren't great, but we had that safety net to to fall back on. So that really had me thinking about. Um, you know, I, I sort of in that moment sort of thought of myself not as I wasn't poor because I had this this safety net inside the family, but I certainly wasn't middle class. And and we moved into Ann Arbor, which was a more affluent place. So I could see that other people were doing a lot better. Um, and so that just got me really sort of thinking that somehow I was in between um, parts of society and um, wondering if I could do something to try to help uh, make connections, right? And try to help uh, people at, at different parts of the economic ladder understand, and especially folks further up uh, who really had no idea what was going on with families who are struggling to make ends meet, um, sort of help them understand and, and, and see if I could help us do something about it. Yeah. Um, you, you use the phrase make ends meet. Uh, I, I'm a kid who grew up in public housing uh-huh. uh, and, and know something about uh, sort of clinging to, to bottom rungs. 
I used to hear my parents talk about ends meat so often. I thought it was actually a meat dish. Uh, <laughs> I would hear them talk about ends meat, ends meat. I was like, well, somebody please cook this ends meat so we could, <laughs> so we could stop talking about the thing, man. <laughs> What's all the hype about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, I grew up and learned exactly what they meant. They meant that uh, it's tough to be poor in America. And you can be a working poor. Both my parents always worked, worked long days, many hours, uh, kept a roof over yeah. our head. Uh, but uh, but it was always robbing Peter to pay Paul, to use another another phrase. And so 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 uh, give us a give us a, a sketch. What, what are we looking at in our country right now? You know, that what we what we say and what we hear said is, is that the, the gap is getting uh, increasingly wider between the haves and the have-nots. And of course, COVID has accelerated some of that. Um, it's, it's sort of amplified or, or laid bare, this, these disparities. So, so how are we doing uh, in terms of, of the poor in America? Well, um, I'm going to sort of start with the pre-COVID uh, answer, and then I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of the COVID answer, which is actually um, there's some very positive notes in there uh, that I think uh, I'd like people to recognize. Sort of, I, I just want to lift that up. Um, so uh, as you were sort of saying about your parents, actually, the experience of most poor families are working families. So, uh, you know, especially when you look at children who are experiencing poverty, um, 70 plus percent have a parent or an, a, an adult who's working over the course of the year. So um, we sometimes make these distinctions between the working poor and the non-working poor. And to some extent, those can help us. But really, um the predominant sort of experience in America is a family who's who's trying to work, but the you know often the job is low pay, the job is unstable, um, so that uh, a lot of retail jobs, of course, have hours that fluctuate. So you might be working thirty hours a week one week, and then ten or fifteen uh, the next, and that makes it really hard actually to you know um, one thing humans are really bad at is uh, instability or volatility like that? How do you plan when your paycheck is changing? And, and what happens to your public benefits if you have to renew when you're making, you know, you're working 30 hours a week, and then you go down to 15, your benefits sometimes go down when you're, you're making more. So I, I like to think of poverty in America as really, um, it's, it's an unstable, sort of a volatile experience where if you catch me at one point in the year, uh, maybe that there's something who's somebody who's working in the household and uh, we think maybe we're sort of on the way out. And then if you catch me at another part of the year, something happened in that job. The hours changed, your hours got cut or something happened in your family life. So that's another piece of the puzzle is that um, uh, low income families often have uh, very um sort of family lives that change a lot, where people are sort of coming in and out of the house. And some of that is driven by the expenses, right? So a really big expense that um, low-income Americans struggle with is housing. So a huge fraction of Americans pay um, more than 30% of their income towards housing. That's what we say is um, sort of our, our usual designation for unaffordable. Many Americans pay half of their um, income towards housing. And, and so, you know, we've increasingly seen families who are doubling up 
or families who can't afford a place. And so they're couch surfing and they might actually be working uh, during that period, right? Uh, but they can't, they still can't afford an apartment on what they can make. So we have a, a lot of instability. Uh, we have a, a, a lot of instability in housing. So uh, we see a lot of kids who um, are moving a lot or don't record at school that they have a, a permanent place to stay at some point as they're growing up. We see you know, instability in jobs where there's a lot of hours fluctuations uh, or um, you know, a lot of labor law violations. It turns out there's not a lot of consequence if you break labor laws uh, and you know, uh, folks who might get paid less than minimum wage or um, be asked to work overtime without any added compensation, they don't, they don't have a lot of tools at their disposal to fight that. And then a lot of instability in family life too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the word that, that I want to take away from all of that is just this uh, volatility. Right. And and certainly at Atlanta, I'm in Atlanta, you're in Michigan. Um, we see a lot of that in Atlanta and we see it. Uh, it comes with a white face and it comes with a black face. It comes, um, you know, in the uh, immigrant community, it comes in the Hispanic folks. Um, and, uh, it's just a high degree of volatility and, and people are sort of one, you know, one catastrophe away from real destitution. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you have a lot of people who are, who are living on the edge or a lot of people who have sort of fallen off the edge and, um, just lives that are constantly in flux because of that. And, um, as you said too, uh, Poverty affects, uh, you know, pretty much any person you could imagine. Poverty uh, can impact families. So people of color are disproportionately likely to experience poverty, right? I think of that as like um, the consequence of our centuries plus of uh, structural racism. But white families also, the majority of people, according to our data, who are in poverty are are white families. So it's it's not right to say it only affects sort of one group or another. It disproportionately affects people of color, but um, there are millions of, of white families who are below the poverty line or just sort of right above it as well. Yeah. We, we, um, we've had, in advance of, of your visit with us, we've had on Jonathan Reckford, who's the executive director of Habitat for Humanity, <clears throat> excuse me, and we've had Dr. Starsky Wilson, uh, who is executive director of Children's Defense Fund. And so we're sort of working out this theme. We're sort of talking about the poor among us. We do this for people who are wondering, so what, what's, the, what's the faith component behind this? You know, Jesus talked a lot about the poor. He talked a lot about people that we would label now as having pre-existing uh, health conditions. He talked a lot about even his own homelessness. Um, and he told this amazing story about a man who dined sumptuously. Uh, night after night, uh, and he had to walk past uh, a, a, another man who was at his gate, who was unwell, who was poor, even the dogs licked his sores. That's a very familiar story from the Gospels. And it was always, uh, it, you know, I was always struck by the tension in that story that, you know, you know, from, the, from, his, from his front gate to his, to his dining room table where he dined sumptuously, that was the gap, that uh, the, the, the poor lived right at his gate, and, and he died sumptuously. And so the poor are all around us. There may be some people who are listening who would say that they are poor. Um, and, and so we're talking about sort of being in close proximity and yet living two 
very different realities in one, you know, what I would say is a great country. And so, so what percentage of folks uh, in America would you say are living below the poverty line? And tell us about that poverty line. Yeah, and I want to come back to this sort of uh, theme of being in relationship and and where that comes from the from the gospel too, um, because I, I have some thoughts on that as well. Um, we uh, I, I like to use a lot of different kinds of data to try to sort of really triangulate on who uh, who who's who's really below what we would call poverty. The the official statistics. I think at last count, um, put it somewhere around 12%. So that would be the 12% of the, the U.S. public would be something along the lines of 35, 40 million people. That's a lot of people. Um, and, and I think some people would argue that that line is set pretty low and that you could actually sort of double it to twice the poverty line. So just to give you a sense of where we are, um, the official statistic would you put you uh, under the poverty line if you have an income of like less than $24,000 a year. So a lot of people say, well, really, you know, if you're making $30,000 a year, you're still really struggling with rent and you're still really struggling to, to put food on the table. Maybe, maybe it could be 40,000. That's really where you're really maybe have a fighting chance. And, and if you do that, you're talking, you know, more like, um, 50, 60 million people. And, and it's in, it's in urban areas, uh, like Atlanta and Detroit. Um, it's growing fastest in recent years in the suburbs as well. So, uh, we've seen some out migration from cities and into suburbs and, and that has some positive things for families, um, sort of reduces the concentration of, of, you know, poor families in poor places, uh, can, can create it, its own challenges. Um, William Julius Wilson wrote a very famous book on this, um, <clears throat> but it also has some challenges where a lot of our, our service providers are actually clustered in the cities. And so um, if you get out to the suburbs and, and you need help, you get into a crisis, there's sort of fewer sort of types of um, services that can really help you out. And then finally, some of our very, very poorest places are in rural America. I think, um, you know, for every 100 books about poverty, we think about it as, you know, are about urban poverty. Sometimes we even just say urban poverty. But if you look at the places that have the lowest incomes, you look at the places that have the lowest life expectancy, you know, like 10 years less than the average American lives, um, look at the places with the lowest mobility, that's often in rural places. And, and that's a very racially diverse space too. I think some people think rural America is um, predominantly white and um, some places it is, but um, in other places uh, you have communities that are predominantly African-Americans or predominantly Latino, um, you know, many different um, types of communities and, and a lot that are struggling because the fewest resources tend to go to those places. I think they're often sort of forgotten. Sure. And certainly that is the case here. So the Diocese of Atlanta, that which is my jurisdiction as bishop, is 75 and a half counties in middle and north Georgia. And, um, you know, it, yeah. And, and what's what's interesting about that is, is that it defies easy definition and stereotypes. So there is white rural poverty. There's black rural poverty. Um, and then, of course, there's the urban phenomena 
And then increasingly over, over my time in Atlanta, I've been in Atlanta 20 years now, it, it, we've seen the suburbs, um, you know, also be shaken by this. Uh, I, re I remember when we had the 2008 uh, housing uh, crash and the bank, uh, you know, all the bank issues with the bad mortgages. Um, I had some friends who were in the luxury real estate business and uh, it sent a lot of these folks who have these plush homes, extravagant homes, really spiraling down. And they were really sort of trapped uh, because, uh, you know, they had sort of uh, built up a life um, with all the decorations of, of, you know, what we would call uh, financial success. And then now all of that was sort of just eroding away and they didn't have anybody to tell. And so a friend of mine called me who was selling real estate. And he said, you got to give me some of those pastoral tricks. You got to, you got to help me. You got to help me talk to these folks. Yeah. Like, these folks are on the ledge here. Yeah. Um, the shame of it all. Yeah. Um, of, of having had, but not having now uh, of it all going away in an instant. And, and so this is hitting our suburbs, uh, you know, as, as well. And so you wanted to make a connection about the gospel. I, I, I love when people have got their own, uh, who, who bring their own sort of understanding of the gospels to, to their work. Tell me something about that. Yeah, I mean, I just thinking about the the story, the parable that you were referencing. I, as I as I've thought about my own work, I've I've really thought that the the call of the gospel is to be in relationship um, across across divides, and so there there's uh, a very clear path that I could do my work and. Um, mostly in my uh, fairly nice office at the University of Michigan. And, you know, I could read books and I could um, look at data. And then when I get frustrated, I could go down and get a cup of coffee at the, you know, the coffee shop down the corner. And I, th I think I could do okay work that way, but I've really come to believe that um, there, from that positionality, there's often, you know, there's, there's sometimes, questions I don't even know to ask, right? There's just a whole reality, as you were sort of saying, I think of it as often being in the same places, but not the same spaces. And so my book, $2 a day, was really the first time that I did work like that, where we looked at a lot of big data, you know, administrative data, survey data. Uh, but we went out and got to know families who were um, really, really not just poor by American standards, but really, really poor. They might have food assistance. Some had a, a housing subsidy, but they didn't have any money coming into the household. And I always remember we were getting to know a couple of moms in Chicago, actually, uh, Jennifer Hernandez, asking folks, you know, what do you do to, to get that little bit of money to get toothpaste or toilet paper, keep the utility bill, you know, keep the utility um, on? And uh, she was walking us through things and um, talked about selling blood plasma. So um, as we got to know families, we, we started to see a little divot on the inside crease of their elbows. And, you know, the first time I saw it, I actually thought, oh, well, that's a drug track line. Maybe, you know, maybe she, she's clean now, but maybe that ex explains some of her experience. And in this case, it wasn't. It was a scar from selling her blood plasma uh, so often. So, so that's what got us into looking at the plasma industry. And it turns out the United States is the only developed country where you can sell your blood plasma twice a, a week. Every other country has deemed the health risks, risks too great. 
Um, we don't have a lot of information on the health risks, but that's sort of not um, by coincidence either. And the United States actually accounts for about 70% of the world's plasma supply and only, I think, 40% of the demand. And so we actually export the blood plasma of predominantly poor Americans all over the world and in what turns out to be one of the most uh, profitable industries in the world. One of the most, according to econ The Economist, one of the most profitable industries in the world. And um, so you, we literally have a, an industry where the raw material is the blood of poor Americans. We've been called the OPEC of blood plasma, fueling this, this internationally you know, extremely profitable industry. And I was a so-called poverty expert. I, I didn't know anything about it. Right. Well, I went out and actually talked to people. Right. That that is amazing. I, I, if I, I know people can only hear my voice, hear our voices, but if they could see me, my 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 mouth is on my desk. <laughs> the OPEC of blood plasma. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we uh, got to know Travis and Jessica Compton in uh, Tennessee. They're in eastern Tennessee. And, and this was the only money coming into their household. Well, we got to know to know them. Uh, Travis had some tattoos that he couldn't account for exactly the timeline of when he got them. So Jessica was the one that sold her plasma and she would, she would actually buy with their food assistant. She would buy an iron rich breakfast bar to eat before she went because your, your iron levels have to be at a certain level and she'd get a little nervous. And, and so she also had to keep her blood pressure down. So she would uh, check out a, a book from the library. It turns out libraries, you know, we think of as the, the living rooms of America's extreme poor, uh, because they, they really provide sort of an open space and an access to books um, and resources. And they would, they would walk over to the plasma center and she would, you know, fill out the forms uh, and then, sit on a, um, you know, I, uh, you know, she would go back uh, into the back. Uh, she would, uh, get hooked up and it would take an hour, an hour and a half or so all told. And she'd walk away with 30 bucks. And, um, this, this money was essential. Right. And, and actually when we looked at the data, it was, uh, it turned out uh, between about 2006 and now we've had about a quadrupling in the number of plasma sales in the United States. So we're we're up over 40 million uh, in in the most recent years. And some people, you know, some people they they read our book and they thought, oh, we should, you know, this is exploitative. We shouldn't allow people to sell their plasma. And I said, no, no, no. Like I, I know what the other options are, right? I, I know I know what Jessica has to do if she can't sell her plasma. I would rather in the short term have her selling her plasma. It happens to be legal. Um, you know, what we really need is to figure out ways that she doesn't need to sell her plasma, right? To make ends meet. Exactly. Let, let me make a point there, um, you know, uh, this about what you learned by sort of leaving your office and leaving your coffee shop uh, and, and, and getting, you know, up close with folks. Um, I, I remember a story that I heard some time ago about a woman who wrote, uh, she was the foremost authority on sort of slave plantations in the mm -hmm. Caribbean. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, sugarcane plantations and, and all the wealth that was generated there for the quote new world. And, uh, and uh, upon, uh, you know, she went on a trip to Jamaica uh, with other scholars and all, they were on the, you know, the proverbial tour bus and going around and seeing, and they saw kids eating a long stocky thing. And she wondered out loud to the tour uh, leader, what was that stocky thing that the kids were eating? And of course, it was sugarcane. <laughs> so here she was as the foremost authority on slave plantations and sugarcane plantations. She didn't know the day-to-day reality of that. And so Brian Stevenson has told us some time ago that it's proximity, 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 proximity. And of course, Jesus's ministry bears that out. You know, sort of the walking around Galilee um, and, and the insights that come from, from talking to people who are actually experiencing the, <clears throat> excuse me, the hardship. And so I, I think that's one part of the invitation today is that, um, you know, uh, you know, and if, if I don't really make a great effort myself, um, you know, you just drive past folks and, you, you know, you, you don't have any ill will for anyone, but they're just not part of your circle, part of your life. And therefore, you don't really get the needs. You drive down the roads in Atlanta. I'm sure this is true in Michigan. You see them under the bridges. You see folks all around. Uh, you see the lines outside of Home Depot and Lowe's, people trying to uh, do a little bit of labor, exchange a little bit of labor for a few dollars to, you know, subsistence stuff. Um, so, so it's all about proximity. You talk about relationship. The Bible talks about neighborliness. Um, Dr. King helped us to understand that, you know, we can build up wonderful little walls in our cul-de-sac and put gates and guards out front. But at the end of the day, we're still going to be neighbors because what affects one affects all. Um, and, and I think we're starting to really get that. Uh, we're way late, but I, I think we're starting uh, to get that. You began to make a move now uh, in this conversation about short-term solutions and perhaps uh, and, and then perhaps uh, overall solutions. So I, I wonder, what can we do about this thing? I mean, relationship and neighborliness, proximity is all good stuff. But what can we do? Are there policies that are coming uh, out of this administration? What's cutting edge to begin to reduce poverty in our country? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to highlight two things. Uh, one is the is the COVID experience. So during COVID, we took a very different path. Uh, and by we, I mean the federal government of how do we address an economic crisis? So th- that last crisis that you mentioned, um, you know, starting in like 2008, we, we, did, we did many things to help families who were struggling, but they were often um, very targeted. There were lots of eligibility requirements to make sure somebody who, you know, didn't really need it, didn't get it. And, and I think that had the impact of, of meaning we didn't do as much as we could. And a lot of people were left out and we had a really long recovery from that. We had many, many years of, of high poverty and, um, and it just took a really long time to, to get the jobs back during, during COVID. I don't, I didn't, the only explanation I have is 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 some folks on the on the left and on the right have been thinking differently about things, and also I think the sort of the crisis of the public health crisis that really brought us together in a way um, for a short period of time at least uh, that 
uh, hadn't in the past. We took a very different approach. We took really broad, bra- broad based um, type approaches like the economic impact payments, where we said, we're going to do the exact same thing for pretty much everybody, all low income families, all middle class families. We're going to expand unemployment insurance. So that's an example. That program isn't really effective for people who are in low wage jobs a lot of the times. They don't meet the eligibility requirements. And during COVID, we did away with that. And we said, we're going to try to create a path where everybody uh, can come in. And the results have been astounding. So um, we had no increase in people, you know, according to official statistics, there are lots of people who have been in crisis. And I want to make that clear. But when we look at the 2019 and 2020 and 2021, there was no increase in the number of people reporting they couldn't f- put food on the table. And that's astounding because during the last recession, it skyrocketed, right? There was actually a drop in poverty uh, in the best ways we know how to measure it because of that money coming in the door. And then here's my favorite fact right now. The number of Americans with bad credit fell to a 16-year low, and and maybe it's even longer than that. That's just as far back as we have data. So there are fewer people in 2021 who have a bad credit report uh, than ever before. And that's a result of the fact that uh, when the government sort of engaged in giving, giving families money, they tended to spend it on things like their rent and their utilities and their grocery bill. And they made themselves better off. So we have fewer people behind on their mortgages. We have fewer people, um, people have paid down their credit card debt. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. And in the child tax credit, it's probably the thing that we could bring along with us in the future. We're not going to do stimulus checks, I think, um, on a regular basis. But the child tax credit was this modest cash transfer, we would call $250 per kid that happened in the second half of last year. And the, the research is really looking quite good. I happen to be a part of the group that sort of built the, you know, was, was a part of shaping the idea for many years. We thought it was, you know, pie in the sky many years ago, and then it became a reality. And, and when it became a reality of saying raising kids is expensive for all low and middle income families, we're going to do this small $250 per kid per month, uh, we saw child poverty plummet. We saw food insecurity plummet. Uh, we saw we saw no impact on work whatsoever. A lot of people thought, oh, if you give people money, they're not going to work. There was there was no impact, no discernible impact. And that's something we could bring forward in the future. So I think when government does things, it should keep it simple. It should often empower families, and it should try to treat families the same. So whether or not saying we're going to do this thing for poor families, this thing for middle income families, do the same thing for everyone. And and that also proves to be a lot more politically popular. Another thing that, uh, another space that I think you can do a lot more about is, are the things we shouldn't be doing anymore. So um, if I just give you a few examples, over over the um, last couple decades, uh, states have been reluctant to raise their income taxes. So they've been increasing their fines and fees. You know, if you get a, a speeding ticket, uh, it costs a lot more than it used to. If you if you are driving without auto insurance, uh, which, by the way, can be pretty expensive, right? That ticket's a lot more than it used to be. And then we, we suspend people's licenses in a lot of places. And that really 
has the impact of catching people in what I call a structural cycle of poverty, where I don't pay my auto insurance, but I got to go to my job, right? Or I'm going to lose my house. So I drive that one day without it. I get pulled over. I get a huge ticket that I can't afford because I couldn't afford my auto insurance to begin with. And then you suspend my license and then I definitely lose my job. So we need to figure out how do we address those things? And so my call to people is to think, you know, we, we tend to think like some things are poverty issues and, and then there's everything else. That everything else often affects families who are in poverty too. So what are the things that we can change in our communities that, that make systems work better? Maybe we can stop charging people quite as much for, for tickets or giving them another path. Uh, what about, um, you know, legal fees? Like how can we, how can we reduce the cost of of legal counsel so that families are better protected, right? Or, um, you know, don't get caught up in huge costs there. Or uh, what about healthcare? How do we reduce the cost of healthcare? Um, so there's things that we can be doing, and then there's things that we need to really think about how do we do it differently in a fundamental way. And and I hope that can be really empowering. I think there's, there's something every day that somebody at pretty much any level, whether it's in your school or your church, that you could do to make a system work better for families who are struggling. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved is a new series from the Office of Communications here in the Diocese of Atlanta. It's a story-sharing series of God's Beloved. They're stories of love, belonging, and seeing God in the world. Sharitha's story is available now. You can read more and watch at episcopalatlanta.org forward slash beloved. You can keep up with four people on IG and Facebook at Bishop Rob Wright. And now back to four people. And yet on the other side of, of perhaps this conversation... There are people who are wondering about um, um, de-incentivizing hard work and and what what we used to call bootstrapping. In other words, how you pull your so we don't want so many giveaways and we don't want so much intervention from from the state uh, such that it it de-incentivizes the individual you know, to get up early and to work hard and to make a way. What do you say to folks who who are really concerned about that? Well, I think there's a place for them in that sort of second bucket of what should we stop doing? Um, uh, one great example. So we were looking in the city of Detroit. There's, there's huge amounts of um, debate in the city where we're really trying to figure out how do we, how do we help connect Detroiters to jobs? Um, how do we help increase success? And and there is a an interpretation of that where you know people say, oh, you know, folks don't want to work. I've been on the ground, and 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 I think there there might always be people like that, but but more so, you can look at the structural issues, right? It turns out a lot of the jobs are in the suburbs, and we've never be- built sort of any reliable public transportation that yeah. can help the traders get to the suburbs. Another thing that really struck me, we, we scraped all of the job postings um, from jobs that are available. You know, there's often people saying, 
uh, oh, there's all these jobs available. And, and there's some truth to that, you know, in at certain points in the economic cycle. Um, but it turns out like a quarter of those jobs require some form of occupational licensure. So when we dig into that, we find, you know, to get that occupational licensure, you often have to go to a training program that's an hour away, right? Or you often have to spend $500 to take a licensing exam. And $500 is a lot. So that's where I would really encourage people I think that's where the bang for our buck is. And then on the on the giveaways, that's partially why I think we should try to keep things simple and, and do more where we're treating more people sort of similarly. So Milton Friedman famously said, you know, when you when you do things, you know, when you give food assistance rather than giving cash, uh, or where let's say you put work requirements in place, um, that's that's big government, right? That's that's it takes a lot of government work to make a, a work requirement that's going to work well. Otherwise, people just shut off the rolls. And if you believe there's no hardship out there, maybe that's okay. But um, there's a lot of hardship out there, right? So if you want a work requirement that really works for people, you got to be willing to spend big. And um, it's a lot easier to say, you know what? Let's take the simpler approach. Um, let's provide sort of the same benefit. Let's not spend a lot of time trying to figure out if people are eligible and treat people similarly. And the, the other impact is that um, the, the programs that we've had in the past, they often decline as your earnings go up. Um, the more that, that that really does create a disincentive to work, right? So an approach that folds more people in like the child tax credit has the benefit of saying, you know, we're gonna provide you that small about a, a amount of stability, but we're not gonna stand in your way um, as you do right by your families, which is what the vast majority of families want to do. You know, um, uh, we had uh, Jonathan Reckford on, as I have said, uh, executive director of Habitat for Humanity. He shared with me uh, a personal letter from Clarence Jordan uh, to the friends of the Koinonia Farm. And it was a 1968, 1968. So listen, listen to what he said. He said, what the poor need is not charity but capital, not caseworkers, but co-workers. And what the rich need is a wise, honorable, and just way of divesting themselves of their overabundance. And, and I guess that's the, that's the last part of, of our conversation, because we can talk a lot about what the poor need to do, and certainly there's work to do. And we can talk about what government needs to do. And, and clearly, we need to be bring some more imagination uh, to some of our solutions and run some experiments on, on how we can make uh, life better for our neighbors uh, who happen to be at the bottom of socioeconomic you know, rungs. But, but Jesus uh, had a lot to say about the rich divesting themselves over their under, you know, in their, uh, out of their overabundance. And that is the third rail in America is, is, is to talk about, um, you know, what the rich can do personally, uh, those of us like myself, for instance, who by the grace of God, I call it by, by grit and grace have, have a few extra dollars laying around. You know, uh, talk a little bit about that side of the equation. Uh, maybe that doesn't come up in your work, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on what uh, on what Jordan says is the uh, the honorable way of divesting oneself of overabundance. 
Um, well, starting out, I really love the um, the coworker versus uh, caseworker, and and I just think that uh, the more that we can think about how we do as being in relationship like that, right? Being a partner and going into that work uh, ready to learn about um, what the world is like and uh, and then try to do something about it. So the, the next time, you know, a listener might go to a food pantry to, to help, right? And do charity work. I, I encourage them to sort of get out from behind the table where the bags are or where the food is and go have a conversation right? And learn about what's been going on in the life of, of someone who's there to get help. And then think about all the sort of forces in society that have had an impact on that person's life and what we might do differently. On, on the second part of sort of disinvesting of, of wealth, boy, you know, uh, I think like you, I like, I like grit and grace. Um, I think I, I, I don't like to say that like, you know, a lot of times people who who have have more, some you know have have gotten it because they've inherited it or they've had advantages, right? But there is a lot of hard work there too, a lot of the time. And so, trying to figure out like what is that balance? And, yeah. And sometimes I feel like you know Jesus could have given us a little bit more to go on <laughs> for that. You know, honestly, um, you know, I think he left us hanging a little bit. Um, but there is like, you know, I think really trying to grapple with like. How much is too much, right? How much, how much is too much in 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 what we as a society can do, what we can sort of agree on to 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 bring some of that into balance. That's the that's the big question that I don't totally have the answers to, but I think we need to figure that out both in sort of a more equal society, and secondly, I think we need to figure it out for the environment. Uh, you know, I'm sort of actually, um, driven by my 12 year old daughter. I've, I've, I'm finally really starting to grapple with, um, climate change in a serious way. Right. I sort of always thought, um, you know, my, my thing was poverty and I was going to let somebody else figure out climate change. Right. But I've just been recently trying to figure out like, I need to live, I need to be a better steward. And so, um, you know, we're really looking into what it what it would look like to actually put solar panels on our house, which would be a stretch for us. Um, but I like to think, you know, maybe maybe it's something right where I'm sort of trying to use some of the financial um, blessings that we have to uh, to change sort of my impact on the world um, for both, you know, um, bringing our our economic uh, community more into balance and also reducing my actual impact on the world and to be a better steward of this earth. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think you've answered, you've asked and answered your own question in some ways. I mean, I, I think, yeah, we, we'd love a little bit more information from Jesus, but, but, uh, but he, he, he does leave us with this notion of stewardship and he does, he does leave us with this notion of relationship and he does say, you know, where, you know, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Uh, and, uh, and, he, and, you know, and what I love about Jesus is, is that there's no brow beating, no guilt or shame. He's, he's, but he's naming the work. He's leaving it. He does. He does. He, he's, he's left it in our hands. 
Well, this has been fantastic, and I, and I think you've given us a lot uh, to uh, to think about. Tell us the name of your book and where we can find it. Uh, yeah, it's called Two Dollars a Day: Living on Almost Nothing in America. Uh, it's a book I co-wrote with Kathy Eden, who's now at Princeton, and uh, you can you can find it online. You could go uh, find it in a Barnes and Nobles, or if they don't have it, you know, you can do me a favor by telling them to get a few copies for the store. <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope uh, we get we have a new book actually in the works. So uh, in a year's time, we're writing a book about um, some of America's poorest places. So we've been getting to know a handful of communities in Appalachia, in uh, the Mississippi Delta, and in South Texas. And so our fir first book was about very poor families. This will be about very poor communities. So, um, you know, people maybe check it out. Professor Luke Schaefer, thanks so much for being with us. It was really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, God bless. <laughs>